Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the third gospel, to Luke chapter 8. We're continuing, continuing to look at some of the women of the New Testament. This morning, we are going to visit with a little girl who's 12 years old. And the interesting thing about this particular story is that this little girl doesn't really do anything, except at the end of the story, she does eat something. She doesn't say anything. And yet, in this particular encounter with Jesus, I think there's a, a power to teach us something about how God works in the world. The story is also found in Matthew and Mark's Gospel. And interestingly, this particular story is inserted with another healing story of an older woman who apparently has had a bleeding disorder also for 12 years, the same age as this little girl. So let's see what we can discover from this encounter that Jesus has with the little girl and with her father. Luke chapter 8, beginning with, with verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And then we see this second story that's inserted here of the lady who has the bleeding disorder and she comes up and she touches Jesus and just touching him, she finds healing. Now move on to verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood. Then Jesus told, her to, told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I was walking into worship this morning, here just a moment ago, Ron Mills, one of our deacons, asked me as we were walking to come in, he says, have you watched any tennis this week? Ron, you know I like to play tennis and watch tennis. I said, yeah, I've watched a lot of the U.S. Open. He said, we've had some surprises, haven't we? And I said, well, you might just hear more about that in the sermon this morning. Because yesterday, I think we saw an unlikely surprise. 
Let's go back about 14 years ago to get the full story about the unlikely surprise. You see, at the age of 10, American tennis player Sloane Stevens' mother took her to a tennis academy. After some time there, a coach told Sloan Stevens' mother, he said, you know, I think your daughter maybe one day might be able to play Division II tennis. Maybe. If she keeps working hard enough. Well, fast forward about 14 years, but to back this, to this past January. In January, Sloane Stevens had surgery on her left foot, and even at the beginning of this summer, she was still in a boot because of the surgery on her left foot. She started her tennis comeback this summer, and at the end of July, listen to this now, she was ranked the 957th player in the world. 957th player in the world. This past week, she became one of four Americans, the first time it's happened since 1982, she became one of four American women who reached the semifinals of the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in New York City. And yesterday, Sloan Stevens moved from being the 957th player in the world to the 17th player in the world as she won the women's U.S. singles open title in New York City. And another part of the story I might just add in is, is some ways a little insignificant, but I thought you might just be interested to know that she brought home a prize of $3.8 million. That's kind of insignificant, I know, but just thought I might throw that in. Ten years old, 14 years later, January, in a boot, the 957th player in the world, today, U.S. Open women's single title. Now, I'd call that an unlikely surprise. What do you think, Ron? That's full of surprises. That's an unlikely surprise. Well, you can imagine even more so now in this text, Jairus, this father of this 12-year-old girl, Jairus needs an unlikely surprise, especially following the interruption of Jesus by this woman who touches him and finds healing Jairus has to stand there and hear after Jesus has been interrupted on the way to his house to find his daughter, to, to hopefully heal his daughter who is sick. He hears these words. Imagine being a parent and having to hear these words. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. To which Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. You know that word healed can also mean restored, it can mean saved, it can mean delivered, it can mean rescued. Your daughter's sick, now she's dead, she will be restored, healed, rescued, delivered. Of course, when Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, he encounters a scene that would have been very common in a Middle Eastern Palestinian home, 
there are professional mourners who are present. Back in that day, there would typically have been a couple of flute players. There would have been a, a woman who would have been the designated whaler, mourner. And even today, if you see on the news in, in Middle Eastern countries when someone has died, and you'll see five or six men carrying an open casket of someone has died, and you'll see people who are standing around wailing. That, that, that Some of them are professionals. They, they wail, they mourn, they grieve. It's very common for the people to tear their clothing, to pull on their hair. That's the kind of scene that Jesus has encountered. The professional mourners are present, the flute players, the woman who is wailing. And Jesus says in the text, Stop wailing. Stop wailing. She's not dead. She's just asleep. What's the mourner's response? I mean, I think the text is, is kind, of, kind of interesting at this point because the text says they laughed at him, at Jesus. You, you know, I don't mind you laughing with me, but don't laugh at me. They laughed at him. Why? Because the text says, because they knew she was dead. There's not going to be any unlikely surprise that's going to happen here, Jesus. What are you talking about? The little girl's dead. And that word laugh in the Greek actually means it's a skeptical laughter. It's a mocking laughter. It's a derisive laughter. It's the kind of laughter that you just don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. What has happened, you think you can bring her back to life? That's an impossibility, Jesus. It just can't happen. You know, this little girl's resurrection, her coming back to life, that whole scene reminds me a little bit of that Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember the story that Abraham's age 100 and Sarah's age 90? And Sarah's been unable to have a child. And yet God has promised to Abraham that his, that, that his descendants will be like the sand on the, on the, on the side of the seashore and, and like the stars in the sky. And Sarah hasn't had any children. And she's 90 years old. And God says to Abraham and Sarah, by the spring, Sarah, you'll have a son. And the text in Genesis 18 says, and they laughed at God. They laughed at it. And I mean, put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's place. 100 years old, 90 years old. How many 90-year-old pregnant women have you seen lately? Wouldn't you laugh? Sarah, you're going to have a baby in the spring? Come on, God, what are you talking about? And that's when God responds, is there anything too hard or too wonderful or too difficult for the Lord? Is there anything? You know, sometimes we face those moments when we need some restoration. We need some healing. We need some saving, some rescuing, some deliverance. We need an unlikely surprise. And we may even laugh or think it's impossible for a situation to change, but this text reminds us, as does so much of Scripture, not always for reasons that we don't understand. But often, God does have the last laugh in these impossible moments that we face. 
Don't forget that God gets the last laugh on the brothers in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis, the brothers who sell Joseph into slavery. God gets the last laugh on those brothers. God gets the last laugh on Pharaoh who declares that he will not let the people of Israel go out of Egypt. God gets the last laugh on Goliath who is the recipient of a rock from the one who would soon become King David in his slingshot. God gets the last laugh on Elizabeth who is old and barren and on Mary who is young and unmarried in Luke's Gospel who eventually bear respectively John the Baptist and the child Jesus. God gets the last laugh on the disciples who say it's impossible to feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. And God gets the last laugh on Sunday's resurrection, following the darkness and following the bleakness of Friday's crucifixion. Those things we think that are impossible for God to heal or restore or deliver or save, guess what? God sometimes gets the last laugh even with a 12-year-old little girl. How many times have we laughed? Mockingly, skeptically, suspiciously of God. Maybe we need an unlikely surprise of healing and restoration and we mockingly think it can't happen. You know, a couple Sunday nights ago, I saw a 60 Minutes interview on television. You know, in the summertime, they have rerun, so I think this was one that actually originally was showed in December of 2016. It's about a 36-year-old man by the name of Saru Brierly. Interesting name, Saru, S-A-R-O-O, Briarly, B-R-I-E-R-L-E-Y, Saru Briarly. Saru Briarly, and you may have seen this on 60 Minutes, Saru Briarly, when he was five years old, was locked on a train for over a day and traveled a thousand miles away from his small village in central India. They made a movie on his story entitled Lion, L-I-O-N. Saru Briarly grew up in this central village in India, and he lived in a brick and, and mud house, one-room house there with his mother, two older brothers, and a sister. The mother, Saru's mother, would often leave the children for days at a time so that she could go work at a construction site hauling brick and stone for less than $1 a day wages. So the children, while she would go, was gone, would often go down to the train station and they would beg and scavenge for food. One night, Saru begged, now he's five years old, one night Saru begged his older brother to go with him down to the train station to beg and scavenge for food. And when they arrived down at the train station, it was later at night, Saru was tired, so he, he laid down on a bench and fell asleep. And when he awoke, he didn't see his brother anywhere. And there was a, a train there in the station, and he went into one of the compartments, one of the carriages, looked for his brother, didn't see his brother anywhere. And of course, the, the, the seats on the train were more comfortable than the wooden bench that he was on. So he laid down on that, on that bench in the train, and several hours later, he awoke traveling across India 
the carriage was locked and there was no one on it. Now, now you just imagine a five-year-old child. Some of you may have five-year-old children. You may have a five-year-old grandchild. I've got a granddaughter that will be almost four in December. I can't imagine a year from now her being on a train going a thousand miles across this country by herself. When Saru got off that train well beyond a day later, he found himself in Calcutta at a train station that on a daily basis sees more than one million passengers coming through and Calcutta is a city of 13 million people. He gets off the train, there's a million people coming through that train station on a daily basis. He starts to call and cry out for his mother, his two brothers, his sister, and then he discovers that the dialect that he speaks in his little village is not the same one in Calcutta. Keep in mind, five years old. So, like some other street children who lived and slept at the train station, he began to beg and scavenge for food at that train station and sleep with the other street children at night until several weeks later, a young man befriended him, took him to an orphanage. And there at the orphanage, they asked Saru if he knew his last name. No. What village are you from, Saru? I don't know the name of it. So they put his picture in the paper with just the name Saru, and after six months, nobody from his family had seen it or came to claim him. At about the six-month point, there was a couple in Australia by the name of John and Sue Brierly, and they adopted Saru. So Saru was put on a plane in Calcutta, flown to Australia, and there he met his adopted parents. And soon he began to learn the English language. And after several years, Saru was able to unpack this story of getting on the train, looking for his brother, getting locked, going a thousand miles across India, ending up at the station, being sent to the orphanage, and then now being adopted by John and Sue Briarly. When the parents found out that Saru was from India, they put a map of India in his room. And from the age of five or six or seven, when he began to tell them that story, up until he was about the time of age 25, that, that map stayed on, his, on the wall of his room. And at the age of 25, Saru decided that he wanted to see if he could find the village where he came from. I want you to see the rest of this 60 Minutes interview with Saru to see how it all panned out. Please roll the video. Nearly 20 years after he went missing, he discovered he could use his memories like a mental map to find his way home. His discovery? Google Earth. It's just so massive, and this is what I've been sort of looking at. With Google Earth, he could get a bird's-eye view of towns and landmarks. He calculated a search radius from Calcutta based on the speed of trains and the time he thought he was locked on board. Night after night, he would follow the tracks, looking for anything that would match his memory of the station where he got lost. So out of all of India, all the train stations in all of India, you're looking for a water tower and a 
walkway over the, tra mm -hmm. over the train tracks. Basically a needle in a haystack. One night, frustrated by hours, years of fruitless searching, he looked out farther than he ever imagined he could have traveled. All of a sudden, I come to this train station here, and I zoom down. It matched absolutely perfectly. The water tower's right the there. The water tower is right there. <laughs> There's and the, the flyover bridge, walkway. pedestrian walkway. Farther on, he saw the dam where he played in the river. It all matched what he had told his adoptive mother, Sue, years earlier, down to the map they had drawn in the diary. Many people don't remember younger than five, but yet you remember in such great detail. Why do you think that is? I reckon what it is is that I never went to school, so language wasn't really in me, you know? It was all visual. My visual senses were extremely heightened. He knew he had to go to India to try to find his mother. At the airport, Sue gave him this photo. It's how he would have looked when his birth mother last saw him. And all of a sudden, you know, my emotions and everything just take over me and I'm just in tears. It was almost like feeling, you know, before actually knowing, Mum, I'm coming home to see you. After 25 years, 16 hours on the plane, and a four-hour drive, he was finally home. It was just as he'd remembered, the path he'd walked many times to his house. But when he got there, it was abandoned. Your family's not there. What are you thinking? I thought they're dead. I thought the worst. Or the worst thing that you could think of possibly was just going through my head. Saru, now an Aussie, stood out in the slum. He couldn't communicate. A man approached who spoke English. Saru said he was looking for the family that had lived in this house. The man told Saru to come with him. And I walked for about 15 meters just around the corner. And the man goes, this is your mother. And she walked forward and I walked towards her. We were, our eyes were locked together. What did you see in your birth mother's eyes when you looked in, looked in them for the first time in years? The tears that I saw when I used to look at her and I can see that she's struggling. But this time it was tears of joy. We sent our cameras to his home village. His mother, Kamala, told us, when I saw him, I knew he was my Saru. He's now been back to India 15 times. He reunited with his sister and one brother, who both had moved to a nearby city. But his mother never left their village. The movie shows the love between Saru and his oldest brother, Gudu, who took him to that train platform 25 years before. Kamla told Saru his brother was killed on the tracks the very night Saru was lost. On that one night, your mother lost two sons. Yes. And, um, and I can't think, you know, what she went through. It's like one is just, you know, here he is, he's, he's died. Um, but the other one, he's just disappeared.
Why did your birth mother decide to stay there in that, in that very village? Because she felt that one day the son that she had lost will come back. And it was amazing because here I am determined to find my hometown and my family from one side of the world, oceans apart, and here's my birth mother sitting there and waiting because she knew that one day her son would come back. And I'm so glad that she did. You know, Saru Briarley's birth mother didn't give up on him. Sloane Stevens' mother didn't give up on her at the age of 10. And this father, Jairus, in this text, didn't give up on his daughter either. I don't know what it is this morning that may make you want to give up. I don't know what it is that perhaps needs some healing or restoring or delivering or saving. I don't know what it is in your life that may seem so impossible to happen and you need an unlikely miracle, an unlikely surprise. I just want to remind you this morning in ways that I don't understand that God delights. He really delights in making the impossible happen in our lives. He delights in surprising us, not in a mocking, skeptical, laughing kind of way, but in a celebrative kind of way. God often does get the last laugh on us. I also want to remind you at the end of this text that Jesus not only gives this 12-year-old girl something to eat after he raises her back up from life, but I want to remind you this morning that I think Jesus is also giving us something to eat, or shall we say, chew on, spiritually speaking. 